I'm Christopher Leiden with the historian on a bicycle, Graham Robb. The way his colleague Simon Shama speaks of drawing on the archives of the feet, walking battlefields and slave quarters, for example, Graham Robb pedaled 14,000 miles through France in the course of recasting the evolution, just in the 20th century, of a nation of Frenchmen out of a wild diversity of villages. And now, he supplied the bicycle method to rediscover a Celtic world of Stone Age Europe, six to eight centuries before Christ, a world built of wood that has long since disappeared, and yet the bicyclist sees more than meets the eye of the documentary historian, especially with computer maps to draw on. This is Open Source, an American conversation with global attitude, we call it. I am welcoming Graham Robb into the legendary home of Boston's basketball Celtics. With his rediscovery of Middle Earth, the idea was to bicycle through the fantasy land of Camelot and Tolkien's landscape of the Hobbit and the Rings. And then, surprise, surprise, a real civilization appeared in the mist of those middle places. Rob's rediscovered Celts were a scientific people with a well-schooled culture in many ways more attractive than Caesar's Roman juggernaut that crushed the Celts and drove the Druids out of continental Europe, out to the British Isles and the wide world's imagination. So the conversation here is about what Graham Robb found out about the Celts and crucially too about how he found it. One of the miraculous things that happens when you cycle through a landscape is you record it in enormous detail, especially if you've looked at maps before you go and discover the reality. And for some reason, maybe it's just the action of pedaling. After you've done it, years later, you can remember very specific points of the landscape, and you have obviously a sense of moving through it. Um, It engraves itself in your your brain, so the archives of the bicycle wheel uh, are almost as good as the archives of, of the foot because you do end up with a huge store of information. You can remember the, the configurations of particular landscapes and imagine how people moved through them. And that was crucial for this book because we think of the Celts, the ancient Celts, the Iron Age, in their smoky thatched hollows stuck for generation after generation, but actually they were very mobile people, huge migrations, but also high-speed transport from one region to the next, tribes moving moving about all the time. Uh, and they had a very sophisticated transport network and extremely good vehicles to run on it. So introduce these Celts. The whole point, I suppose, is discovering that there are deep cultural, even scientific, important human connections between their world and ours. We think of it also as the world of Camelot, King Arthur, Guinevere, Merlin, all that stuff. Also, Asterix. I loved uh, Rachel Donatio's line in the Times that you've married Asterix and Longitude, but modern mapping, computer mapping, we've got to get to that too. But what about those Celts? What are the traces? Well, the, the traces are at first invisible because the big difference between the Celts and the Romans is that the Romans built in stone and stone tends to last, whereas the Celts tended to build in wood. And it's only very recently that archaeologists have been able to analyze wooden buildings of the Celts. And the amazing thing they've discovered is that some of the wooden mansions in which the Celts lived were, in engineering terms, far more sophisticated than any Greek or Roman temple. Really? Can this be? Yes. I mean, carpentry can be extremely complex. And uh, 
you know, once you're piling stones on top of one another, um, as long as you have enough slaves to carry the stones and, and lift them, it's not necessarily that difficult an engineering problem. And actually, it's typical of the Celts that very often their structures look um, hopelessly clumsy. And the, the typical shape that you find all over the Celtic world, that's the shape of their enclosures and temples, is something that looks like a rectangle drawn by a, a clumsy child. And one of the things I discovered working on this book was that actually this rectangle is the odd shape you get when you draw an ellipse. You have two poles at the focal points, a loose piece of cord between, and you draw it out taut, and what you end up with is an ellipse. And so when we look at these strange discombobulated rectangular temples, what we're actually seeing is a structure that implied the ellipse, which is the yearly course of the sun through the sky. Take us back through the Celts themselves. These were the people of Europe and France, let us say, of Gaul, um, as in Caesar. All Gaul is divided in three parts or whatever. Um, and the Romans drove them out, essentially, and they drove the leadership and the Druids into England, Scotland, Ireland, and the rest is, is, is your history. But what is it that you're arguing we owe in some effect, in any folk ways or thinking ways, uh, to these people in their redoubts in, in England and Ireland? Well, it's true we think of the Celts uh, as the people who were defeated and crushed by the Romans. And Caesar himself explained that his policy included deliberate genocide. He would wipe out entire tribes, either by killing them all or selling most of them into slavery, or by mutilating all the male members of a particular tribe so that they would never bother Rome again. Good old Caesar. Yeah, good old Caesar. It's important. His, his work was a work of propaganda because even in Rome, people were some people were appalled at what he was doing in Gaul. And the crucial thing about the Roman conquest of the Celtic world is that this wasn't a simple military conquest. Caesar tra traveled with huge numbers of merchants and traders who were prospecting the new market in basically gold, precious metals, and slaves. And that's what was going to be the basis of Caesar's political power because he was reducing people's taxes back in Rome and creating this safe buffer zone between Rome and the barbarian world. And that's why he tends to present the Celts as mud-smeared hooligan barbarians. And that image still survives today, at least in, in Britain. Certainly when the English think of the Scottish or Welsh or Irish Celts, those are the kind of images that still come up. And, and what do you find on the contrary? Well, it was, in many ways, it was a more sophisticated civilization than Rome. And one of the reasons the Romans were so keen to make the Celts look ridiculous is that every Roman knew that in 387 BC, before there was a Roman Empire, a Celtic army had marched into Rome and captured it and plundered it and massacred the citizens of Rome. And that was a huge humiliation, which the Romans never forgot. So when they set about massacring Celtic tribes, that was something that was in the back of all their minds, that these were the this was the eternal threat to the north beyond the Alps that had to be eradicated. And ironically, it's because the Celts had moved into northern Italy and colonized it and created towns 
like Milan, Turin, Bologna, which all have Celtic names. They're not Roman names. They're not from Latin. They had been driven out by the Romans when the empire began to expand. But it was the Celts who first introduced the Romans to all the sophisticated technology, uh, particularly of transport, of carts and carriages and high-speed chariots and roads. And that's why in, in Latin, almost every word for a wheeled vehicle is actually a Celtic word. All those words come from Celtic. Which words, for example? Uh, for example, there's esedon, which is four-wheeled chariot, and lots of other words for different kinds of chariot. Uh, there's the word for chariot itself, kurus, uh, uh, in Latin, which comes from a Celtic word, uh, which means that the Celts gave us the word car. That's where, that's where the word comes from. And there's also this place name Mediolanum, meaning, in, in many forms, but meaning the Middle Earth or a middle place or something, which gets us into this whole Tolkien world. I mean, it's fascinating to me that what we know about, what little we know about the Celtic world in a popular culture is mostly this sort of fantasy of Tolkien, but also of King Arthur's tales. And dare I say, I mean, so close to the 50th anniversary of, of the end of our Camelot in the White House, Camelot itself. I mean, there is this kind of dreamland of, of beautiful princes and gorgeous wives like Jacqueline Kennedy. I mean, what are we talking about? There are several layers, including, start with Middle Earth itself, what that means. Middle Earth is a, is a crucial concept in Celtic mythology and Norse myth mythology. And Tolkien knew this and, and used it as the name of his fictional universe in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. But Middle Earth to the Celts was simply our Earth. It's the inhabited world on which we live. Beneath that world, there's an, an underworld, which you can get to by diving into the sea or by going into caverns. And above it is the heavenly world. So the, where we live is the middle of three, three worlds. And that, that concept of the middle, you can see in all sorts of Celtic art objects. Where it's, it's, the middle is, is the point that determines the rest of the pattern. That's the, you know, it's, it's vital to know exactly where the middle of your territory is. It's both religious and practical. It's moderation, but it's also somewhere between heaven and hell. Yeah, it's, it's three-dimensional. So it works on the earth. Um, you know, it's the point that's the intersection. That um, the, the Greeks had the same concept, that Zeus decided to find where the exact center of our world is by releasing two crows at opposite ends of the earth. The crows flew at exactly the same speed, and the point at which they met was the center of the earth, which was Delphi, known as the Omphalos, which is, means womb. And uh, the Celts had the same, the same concept. So that's, that's the significance of, of Middle Earth for the Celts. Um, uh, well, I have a literal connection with Tolkien in that we both studied at the same college, uh, Exeter College, Oxford, where I later taught. And I recently discovered uh, that obviously by chance we lived in the same two staircases in our, our first two years, staircases seven and eight. So I'm sure you wouldn't mind my trying to recover the concept of Middle Earth for ancient history. Inside this mission, your bicycle mission, but also I think in Tolkien's imagination, there's some, there's some deeper search here for some imaginary dream place that can still inspire with the Arthurian legends, or God knows what else. What, what is the impulse? What's driving you? And it, was it the same thing that was driving Tolkien? 
I'm not sure it was the same thing that was that was driving Tolkien. It is interesting, as you say, that most of the positive images of the ancient Celts are fictional, because Arthurian legend, a lot of that was put together in the early Middle Ages, and it wasn't really supposed to be factual history, although it did use Celtic legends. And what I found, what I found really exciting and magical was the idea that you can reconstruct the way in which the ancient Celts mapped their world by putting together different bits of verifiable information, which do include legends, but it, it's crucial to look at the, the on-the-ground information. So instead of burrowing into a hobbit's home, I wanted to stay on the, the real Earth, the Middle Earth, and see what archaeologists have actually turned up, what physical evidence there is of, of what would otherwise seem a, a magical, mystical place. And what did you find? Well, thanks to archaeologists, I found a, a tremendous amount. I mean, a huge amount is now known about about the Iron Age. And one of the most uh, superficially boring but extremely <laughs> fascinating books ever published in France is the 130-volume archaeological map of Gaul, in which every single archaeological object, every single bit of pot or gold coin that's ever been discovered is described and listed exactly where it was found. Uh, so it does work like a map. You can follow it and, and rediscover things that you can't see on the ground, but that have been described in great detail by archaeologists. And For example, one of the, uh, one of the big problems of trying to combine a bicycling holiday with a rediscovery of the Celts is that instead of going to the interesting medieval and before that Roman cities with their great cathedrals and ruined Roman temples, you very often find yourself in a featureless heap of rubble on the edge of town on a hilltop, which was the original Celtic tribal capital before the Romans moved it to a more convenient place. And quite often, it's almost like a discovery in reverse. It's very often in the places where there seems to be absolutely nothing of interest to see at all. Take us to one of those places. You've been to, what, hundreds of them? Yes. Um, well, the, f the first thing that strikes you when you go to an Iron Age town, a Celtic town, is that it is extremely inconvenient. And that's one of the good things about being on a bicycle is you certainly notice the gradients. In some ways, the steeper the gradient, the older the, the place. And they do look like illustrations in, in science fiction comics because you have to imagine a hilltop with a very sophisticated, comfortable, well-supplied town full of educated people, different districts, residential, industrial, uh, religious, and imagine people living a normal urban life in these highly implausible places that very often are a long way from rivers, hard to get to, even now are, are isolated. Whereas nearly every Roman settlement is still a busy place. It's been occupied ever since the Romans. Whereas the Celtic places, some of which aren't much older than the Roman towns, seem to belong to a different world. They're hard to get to. They're very often hard to find on a map. Uh, and yet they did exist. These were the, the first urban centers in Europe. And it's as though it's as though they'd come from another world and they belong to a different network. And one, of the, one thing you notice when you go and see these places is it's very easy to find a Roman town because there are signposts pointing to the, the Roman town. 
When you go to see a Celtic town, you have to allow it a lot more time, not just because they're on hilltops, but because it's strangely easy to get lost in their vicinity because there are all kinds of tracks that don't go anywhere, little roads that used to be important but that just end in a field. And I found this again and again. Graham, can you say what they feel like? I mean, we've seen so many reconstructions of Roman pillars, Roman, the Roman Forum, part of it is still there, but it, they've been animated, they've been cartoonified and, and reconstructed in Las Vegas and this kind of thing. What, what, would, uh, what would Celtic Town look like if it were became a tourist attraction, say, in Vegas? When you arrived at Celtic Town, once you'd struggled up the hill, you would go past a very well-tended cemetery you would have passed through very tidy woodlands, not the trackless forests that you see in movies about the Celts, but coppiced woodland that had been maintained for generations, very nice fields with little fences. And as you approached the town, you would see a huge wall looming from the hilltop, made primarily of stone, but with the ends of huge tree trunks embedded in the stone. It used to be thought that these were built for defence against the Romans. In fact, they don't make very good defence. They burn down very easily and, and can be toppled with a battering ram. And they built that way because they looked nice. They looked impressive. And how do you know? Uh, well, archaeologists have conducted experiments built, rebuilding these walls, which have been excavated. And, um, and they found that uh, they are quite easy to demolish. But they've also found that they required an enormous amount of work. And although the Celts did have slaves, they didn't to the same extent that the Romans did. So it was like a huge communal effort to build this beautiful, impressive wall that surrounded the town inside. And the other surprise is that once you got into the town, you would at first see something that just looked like a smoky clutch of thatched buildings. And yet, within that, there would be places such as the temple and particularly the blacksmith's forge, which would contain very advanced technology, very well-trained people. And if you went into the blacksmith's forge, say, instead of seeing a man beating an anvil with a hammer, you would have found uh, an artist, probably a druidic artist, with very precisely directed heating jets that could produce the most miraculously microscopically detailed gold objects. And gold is is very volatile substance. I had a neighbor recently who offered to mend a neighbor's gold wedding ring. And he turned on the flame and uh, suddenly the ring disappeared. It's that volatile, it had, it had gone. And a lot of the techniques that Celtic smiths used haven't been rediscovered, and yet we know what they produce because we still have their, their objects. How do you know that these little remains are druidic? Well, the, the druids were simply the intelligentsia of the Celts. Mm. They were priests, but they were also scientists and philosophers. Mm. We know this from about 20 different ancient writers. We know actually quite a lot about the druids. Unfortunately, uh, it's only the later Roman fantasy literature, which in some ways makes you think of Tolkien. It's like early science fiction. Those are the images of the Druids that have survived. But in order to become a Druid, uh, it would take about 20 years. So as long as it takes to go from nursery school to a doctoral degree. They had the most comprehensive education 
in the ancient world. It included uh, mathematics and geometry and surveying and uh, political science and religion. Uh, and a typical druid was not a white-robed wizard with a long pipe, uh, but a man like Divicciarchus, who was Caesar's best friend in Gaul, who's one of the very few non-Romans to have addressed the Roman Senate. He was a diplomat and a, a politician. He stayed with Cicero in his house on the Palatine Hill in Rome. A very sophisticated, educated man. He, he was a typical Druid. You make a lot of their schools, an educational tradition and discipline, as you're saying, a kind of intellectual aristocracy and energy in a, in a great many fields. Spell it out some more. Well, the Druids were uh, actually not an aristocracy. They were an elite, but we know that uh, even people of humble origins could become a Druid. And there were also female Druids. So that's another respect in which it's completely different from Greek or, or Roman education. Uh, the Druids played a major political role because the Celtic tribes retained very strong individual identities. And you can see that in place names in France. Uh, for example, the Parisii still have a capital on the River Seine. Uh, the Tourones still live in Tours, and the Rémy live in Reims. So they recovered their Celtic names and lost their Roman names, unlike a lot of other places in the Roman Empire. And so how, how did all these separate tribes with their own strong identities form such huge alliances against Rome at, at very short notice? And how did the, all these different tribes come to have a recognizably similar religion and, and art? And that, that was the role of the Druids. And apparently one of the things Druids were able to do was to intervene in a battle, in a war between two different tribes, and, and stop the battle. So they, they were really the founders of what you could call the Celtic Empire. And that's why all these different tribes were, for instance, able to create a monetary union 2,000 years before the Eurozone and set exchange rates with uh, Massalia or Marseille and Rome and Greek cities. It's this persistence of an identity that I find so fascinating and so, you know, connected to our world of the 21st century in which, you know, despite <laughs> moments when we think of it as a unipolar world, all kinds of identities persist. You could even say thrive, but they're still certainly pushing back in a very powerful way. Uh, what is that impulse to maintain names and places and loyalties and gods and attachments and styles against all the odds, against every military defeat or, you know, wiping out of borders. I think it, sh it shows the power of Celtic culture, that it, it transcended ethnic groups, because the, what we call the Celtic Empire wasn't an empire in the sense of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was created largely by conquest, Whereas the Celtic Empire, which went all the way from Turkey to Spain and Scotland, was spread by dissemination of a language and a religion uh, and an art. Your book reminds me of a marvelous book by a guy named David Hackett Fisher called Albion Seed, and it's about parts of England that settled different parts of the United States. I mean, the Scots-Irish famously went to the south and the border states, the East Anglians... Puritans came to New England, 
and then leapt over the continent to Portland, Oregon, and the Northwest, et cetera. And the place names all show that, Plymouth and Boston and uh, Portland, for example. Um, and there are different styles, different rules about courtship, different food styles, different worship styles, different, different everything. And from the 17th century to today, uh, certain responses and folkways are amazingly durable. How do we how, how do we explain all this, and what difference does it make in the end? Well, cul- cultural traits do seem to have a very very long life, and in the in the Celtic world, I suppose it, it was magnified by the fact that the the Celtic peoples were reduced, pushed out to the extremities of Europe, and so the contrast with the with other cultures which came in with the Romans, but especially after the Romans tends to emphasize features which had been common throughout most of Western Europe before the Romans marched in. I connect this also with a variety of maps you can see on the on the web of the you know the 11 or the 14 states of the of America these regions that are dominated by Mormons in one place or uh, black Baptists in another and these kind of uh, regional identities um, Again, very persistent, certainly very, very slow to change, and somehow deeply rooted, much more than we, than we think of in, in loose talk about you know, the United States. I'm not sure in, in Britain how deeply rooted they are, because a lot of the um, talk of Celticness is actually based on relatively recent history. And this is especially true in Scotland now. And at the moment, I live on the English-Scottish border, and it's literally a stone's throw from Scotland. And so the question comes up quite a lot. And there's no doubt there are a lot of people who feel that they are Celtic. But when they say that, they mean not English. They're distinguishing themselves in particular ways. And it, the idea of Celticness is continually being reinvented. And one of, one of the traits, for example, is supposed to be behavioural. The Celts tend to get overexcited and they tend to get drunk and and this is in some ways going back to the Roman view of the Celts because they said they're bar- barbarians because they drink their wine undiluted but it's a lot of it is based on um, medieval history which itself is is misunderstood and the you could also talk about the Celts of France and the Celts of southern England but it's the whole notion has been reinvented for present purposes there's no questioning people's sincerity in, in defining themselves as Celtic and saying they, they feel Celtic. But it would be very hard to put your finger on it. That, that's really going into, that's stepping into the world of fiction or going into the world of fiction and bringing fictions back into our world. What should Celtic, Celtic mean in the world today? What should it stand for? It's hard to say what, what Celtic should stand for in the world today. I think it shouldn't. I think it's important to distinguish it from the, the ancient Celts and, uh, and to see that the, the concept of a Celt is very, very complicated. And as you say, a lot of it comes from fiction, but a lot of it comes from, from modern politics, and especially in Scotland at the moment, where people are about to vote on whether Scotland should be independent or not. There, the idea of Celticness has become wrapped up in, in the idea that Scotland has its own separate identity and that this identity should be asserted politically. But when you actually go to Scotland or Northern England, uh, it, 
it's very fragmentary. Everyone has their own particular sense of what it is to be Celtic. And the slightly worrying thing was that the leader of the Scottish Nationalists, who are currently running the Scottish Parliament, said at one point that every school child should be made to watch the film Braveheart, which is probably one of the least accurate portrayals of medieval history of Scotland there's ever been. I thought Rachel Donario asked you a wonderful question in the New York Times, which is basically, does all of this suggest somehow that tribal identity or these ancient group identities trump empire in the long run? And it's a question about our time, too, in the spread of American power and civilization, so-called. Who wins these struggles in the end, as in the Middle East today? The curious thing about Celtic tribal identity is that they were able to have their separate identities and yet come together and form huge alliances, uh, tribes from all over Gaul and part of Spain and and Britain. Uh, And then they could dissolve back into their original tribal identities. So I think it does show that you can have, there can be a a very wide identity. You can still have your local identity. Your local identity isn't necessarily threatened by a political arrangement of some kind, which is very often made for expediency, whether it's security uh, or financial gain or trade or religion. Those those tribal identities will survive. The Scots will still be Scots, whether they're, they have independence or not. And they, they would be silly to, to leave Europe. I mean, in some sense, we're only now in Europe getting back to the state of affairs in the Iron Age with the Celtic tribes, when Europe, a large part of Western Europe, was a recognisable political entity with its own subgroups within, within that. Last word. So how should we imagine this Middle Earth that something in us uh, impels us to? Well, we should imagine Middle Earth as the world in which we're still living and which still has traits of the original Middle Earth as created by the Celts and and their gods. Graham Robb, it's such a pleasure to hear the way your mind works and to read your beautifully written stuff. I was going to say, you write like an angel and you research like Lance Armstrong or somebody, Uh, but it's a good combination. And thank you again for the discovery of Middle Earth. Thanks, Chris. It's a great pleasure. The other book that Graham Robbs reminded me of is the recent novel of New York titled Open City, imagined by the Nigerian-American Teju Cole. Teju Cole and Graham Robb share a gifted eye for stripping away the visible and seeing the history and the prehistory half-hidden, like the thousands of miles of stone walls in the regrown forests of New England, for example. He's saying that the way to imagine the Middle Earth of Tolkien and King Arthur and the Celts is as a world that some of us are still living in. Mary McGrath produced and edited this conversation with Graham Robb. His new digressive bicycle path of a book is The Rediscovery of Middle Earth. The conversation about it isn't over until listeners, that's you, leave a comment at our website, radioopensource.org, where you can also find our conversation with Graham Robb couple of years ago about how he found France from a bicycle seat. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Project.